Friends, would you open Scripture to the book of James, chapter 4? We'll be reading, actually I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 18. We'll be reading for the third time this passage um, that we've been working on for the past few weeks in the book of James. For those of you who are new to our congregation, we are currently going through a sermon series through the book of James, a series that challenges us to consider what is genuine faith. What does genuine faith mean? look like. And this morning, we are looking at James chapter 4, and again, starting actually with chapter 3, verse 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to grab a Bible provided in a chair in front of you. Uh, You may find this passage on page number 1012, and if you don't own an ESV Bible, you are welcome to grab one of our Bibles, take it home with you. We'd love for you to have it and read it for your edification. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You, adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to bless the reading and preaching of His word. Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit as you desire to speak to us and to address our hearts. Father, we confess that it is not your word that is insufficient or powerless, but it is the stubbornness of our hearts that often resist your ways, often resist your word. Would you break through that resistance this morning? We pray that you would give us your spirit to give us understanding and to give us a humility to receive your word with meekness. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory and honor and through the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Amen. Well, friends, in this part of Scripture, in this text we read today, James challenged his readers with a truth they should have known. He says, don't you know? Don't you know? What were they supposed to know? What were they supposed to know? What are we supposed to know? In verse 4, James said, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James expected these Christians to know that they cannot keep friendship with the world and with God at the same time. The idea of the world here means um, a particular thing that is different than the, the way it means in other parts of Scripture. Uh, in other parts of the Bible, the, the, the word the world can actually have a positive sense, or at the very least a neutral sense, if not a positive sense. For instance, in the famously and well-known verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. In that verse, the world is used in a positive sense to include and to refer to humanity, to that which God created. But the, wor the notion, the world, can also have a negative sense, referring to the rebellion against God, the desire to live life apart from God, rejecting our Creator. This is the negative sense that now James uses here in this passage. For James, the love of the world is not the same kind of love that God has for the world in John 3.16. For James, the love of the world is, very, is a bad thing to have because James says to, to, to wish to be friends with the world causes us to be enemies of God. For James, he uses the language of the world as being incompatible with God. Now, James is not saying we should not love God's creation He's not saying we shouldn't love the people whom God created. Rather, James is saying that we should not love the thinking, the values, the, the attitudes, the priorities that reveal a desire to live life independent of God. To live life apart from God's ways to try to live life without letting God speak into our lives, without letting God rule our decisions, rule our direction in life, to, without letting God reign over our relationships, to live life apart from God's ways, a self-centered, impure, man-glorifying life. In this sense, James is speaking about the world he says, therefore, whoever, he doesn't say whoever is a friend with the world, but he says, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world, just wishing to be a friend with the world makes us enemies of God. Friend, if you are trying to love both God and this world, take a deep pause. Hear the warning of this verse. You cannot do both, love God and love this world. I, 
enjoyed this past weekend or this past week having an, uh, a membership interview with one of the prospective new members and uh, had the joy of, um, of hearing how um, this person at some point in, in his upbringing had a season in his life where he intentionally tried to love both God and the world. And he thought he could do both. And he did both for a while. It was sweet to hear him say the following, but it was a miserable position to be in. It's hard to live in both worlds. It's hard to pretend like you're a good Christian when in reality you, your heart really loves this world. It's hard to live with two identities. It was sweet for me to hear that pain from the soul of this person, to hear that it's hard to do both. James says, and it was sweet also to hear that he decided to go 100% with the gospel. Friends, James reminds us it does not work well for us to, be, to, to try to be friends with both God and this world. Such a double friendship creates enmity between us and God. But James brings up another question. Not only he says, don't you know? Don't you know that the world, the loving, the world, friendship with the world is enmity with God? He gives a second question in verse 5. Do you suppose it's no purpose, as Scripture says, he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God's jealousy over us, over our exclusive worship of him, leads God to give us grace. Why does, he God, why does He give grace? He gives us grace so that we can live the kind of life that would not provoke the jealousy of God. That's why He gives us grace. He doesn't give us grace to let us wander off or let us continue to stay in our double friendship kind of life. He doesn't give us grace to just let us continue to provoke his jealousy, he gives us grace so we may live the kind of life that will not provoke the jealousy of God. But notice to whom God gives this grace. Notice who is the recipient of this kind of grace. The humble. The humble. Friends, lacking humility is very devastating for the Christian life. Lacking humility is very devastating from the Christian life. Not only will we miss out on the grace of God, which He promised to give to the humble, but worse, it says that God opposes the proud. I, uh, I love what C.J. Mahaney said in one of his books. Pride takes innumerable, innumerable forms, but has only one end, self-glorification. Pride takes innumerable forms, but has only one end, self-glorification. No wonder that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud because He, he doesn't want us to be consumed with our self-glory, with our self-gratification. God opposes the proud because He wants us to turn back to Him because He made us to glorify Him. So how do we, how do we humble ourselves before God? How do we live the kind of life that 
enables God and invites God's grace in our lives? How do we live the kind of life that, that seeks the grace of God? The answer to this question of how, what does a preamble look like? The answer to this question is verses 7 through 10, the passage we read today. Here we have in, this, in these four verses from verse 7 to 10, we have 10 commands. I, I was tempted to call them the 10 commands of James for the humble. If we were now, don't, do not, um, do not worry, we will not have a 10-point sermon this morning. I think the best way we can, we can try to make sense of these 10 verbs, these 10 commands, um, is to, to, to sort of organize them in, in four big spheres. And these spheres progress. They, they, they help us understand what does it mean to live a humble life, to cultivate humility in our lives. Four main ways in which we can cultivate humility in our lives before God. If you like taking notes, here's the first one. How do we humble ourselves before God? How do we cultivate humility? Number one, submit to God. Submit to God. Humility begins with an attitude of submission to the one who made us, to our Creator. Look at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Friends, a proud person is someone who is not able to submit to any authority over them. Someone who's proud cannot take orders from someone above them. He, has a hard, he or she has a hard time sitting under someone's oversight over them. The spirit of our age disdains a notion of submission. Mankind, and especially our society today, loves to have no authority to submit to. Yet James tells us that for Christians, for the Christian, humility begins with our submission to God. Actually, failure to submit to God is at the heart of sin. Sin is a rebellion against the authority of God against his ways, rejecting his decrees. I love how um, Doug Moo in his commentary says, the essence of unbelief is failure to submit to God's laws and to his righteousness. And he gives two verses. In Romans 10, 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about the Jews who chose not to believe the Word of God and His righteousness which God provided. Here's how, how Paul describes the Jewish people who were rebellious towards God. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to the righteousness of God. Now, for those of you who like the language in evangelism, the language that we are to um, invite Jesus into our hearts, well, first of all, friends, that picture is nowhere in the Bible for unbelievers. It is not a, it's not a healthy way to think about the response to the gospel. I know we're very used to using that language. I am, I'm sympathetic to the power of habits that we use that language of inviting Jesus into our hearts. Uh, but the more biblical way to think about responding to the gospel is not so much inviting Jesus into your heart as much as submitting to the righteousness of God. 
submitting to the righteousness of God. In this passage, in Romans 10, 3, Paul speaks about that language. But it's not just the Jews who failed in this. Actually, all humanity has this trouble and this inability to submit to God. Just a few chapters earlier, in Romans 8, verse 7, the passage we read in our service earlier, Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So friends, when we think about calling people to respond to the gospel, we are calling them to do that which their fleshly nature is not able to do. We're calling them to submit to God. So friends, even when you call someone when you share the gospel with someone, you share the good news of salvation. Instead of using language of just inviting Jesus in your heart, start using language that shows the biblical attitude of a sinner needing to come and to submit to God. Recognizing at the same time that in our sinful nature, even for us as Christians, when we live to our, according to our sinful ways, our sinful fleshly mind, realizing that this corrupted nature in us cannot submit to God. It will not and it cannot. Friends, when we are hostile to God, we can't submit to His ways. If you see in yourself hostility to the Word of God, realize you are struggling to submit to God. Now, what does it mean to, to submit to God? What does it mean to submit to Him? It means accepting Him as authority over us, over you, over me, over one another, over this church. It means allowing Him to call the shots in your life. It means to obey Him in what He says. To submit to God involves submitting to His Word. You can't submit to God without submitting to His Word. You can't say, oh, I submit to God, but I don't submit to His Word. I have a hard time with this Word. You can't do that. I love what Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, but this God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Humility before God, humbleness before God starts with this submission to God and to His Word. Our members are aware that our congregation right now is working through a process of writing our new uh, constitution for our church. And uh, by the way, we will hopefully we'll make, start making that available in a pre-release version next week. Uh, I know some of you have been very anxious and, and, uh, and wanting to see it. But one of the languages that we use in that new constitution uh, when we describe who can be a member, what it means to be a member of this church, um, we actually have the following language in describing the requirements for membership. We use the language of submitting to Scripture. It says, and I'm quoting from the New Constitution, each member must agree to submit to the teaching of Scripture. Now, actually, we discussed this word of whether or not we should, we should use the word submit in this phrase. 
in our world, our society has a view of submission that is very negative, very derogatory. But yet, when it comes to the Christian life, oh, friends, we must understand that the Christian life is a life of someone who has agreed to submit to God and to His Word. We want to be a people humble before the Lord who submit to God and to His Word. That's what it means to be a member of this congregation. That's what we want to say in our Constitution. Now, we should be cautious of any attitude in our own hearts that might lead us to say, I know the Bible. I know the Bible says this, but we can't do it. We should be cautious of such attitudes when we recognize that the Bible teaches us to say this or to do this or act in this particular way, and for us to look and say, I, I get it, I understand it, mm, I just can't do that. Friends, I want you to be very cautious when you are caught in the, or you are tempted to think that way about any teaching of the Bible, of Scripture. A prideful heart, a prideful heart will show itself in its opposition to the Word of God. And a humble heart would show itself by submitting to the Word of God. But submission to the Word of God manifests its, its, itself in two more ways. Actually, the next few commands are building up this idea of, of humility, submission. What does submission look like? Well, let's look further. Actually, the next two commands are point number two. Uh, together, resist the devil and draw near to God. Resist the devil and draw near to God. These two commands, which are point two in your outline, describes to us a further what it means to submit to God. Look at verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Friends, placing ourselves under God's authority, submitting ourselves to him, means negatively that we refuse to bow down to the opposite of God's authority, to that which opposes God. We oppose that which opposes God. Therefore, we resist and oppose the devil. Oh, friends, when we submit to God, we oppose the devil. We can do both. We can submit to God and also sort of play, lure, play games with the devil as well. We don't want to keep an open door for him. Now, you may wonder, why is this command to submit to the devil, I mean, uh, um, oppose the devil as we submit to God, why is this command put here in this place? Friends, because the devil is the originator of pride. He is the source of all which pride produces in us. He is the source of the earthly wisdom which James exposed in chapter 3. Remember how James described the wisdom of chapter 3, the earthly wisdom? He said it's earthly. It's demonic. McCarthy said the following about the devil. It is the devil who fosters jealousy and ambition. It's the devil who offers a fake wisdom and a false faith. It's the devil who brews a broth of discord and contention and murderous envy to sap the church's vitality and undermine its integrity. That's why we must oppose the devil, because he is ultimately the source of everything that is earthly wisdom and the fruit of earthly wisdom. But submitting to God involves more than just opposing the devil. Submitting to God involves a drawing near to God. Look at verse 8. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Our submission to God is not a distant, 
cold, official submission, the kind of submission that we may bring to him because we figure out we have no other choice. We can't compete with God. We can't fight him. So we are going to sort of submit to him. It's not really our choice. It's not really our desire. But we're caught in a corner. So we know we should submit to him. So we will submit to him, but we don't really want to. It's always a kind of submission that looks to the fence of how much can I get closer to the world and still sort of officially be submitted to God. It's that kind of submission. Friends, that is not what James is talking about. The submission that James envisions is a submission that wants to draw near to God. It's a submission that that brings the, the fellowship between you and God closer in. It's a joyful submission. Now, clarification. It says, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This promise is primarily for believers who are toying with friendship with the world. That's the context. That's the people to whom James is uh, writing this word. Uh, This this promise is not for unbelievers thinking that they must first draw near to God before God would draw near to them. Friends, if you're an unbeliever, the logic of the gospel is not what this verse says. The logic of the gospel is that you cannot draw near to God unless God draws near to you. Friends, realize that you are dead in your sin. If you're not a Christian, your human nature cannot submit to God. The only way that you can be enabled to respond to God and draw near to God is if the Spirit of God comes inside of you through the preaching of the gospel and awakens you, enabling you to hear and understand what is being said and actually giving you a conviction of sin and and realizing the wrath of God and realizing the sweetness of the grace of God and enables you to respond to Him. The logic of the gospel is that God must first come inside of us and awaken our souls and enable us to respond to Him. Oh, friends, if if you're not a Christian, realize that there is nothing you can do to somehow earn brownie points with God and somehow get God to get closer to you to save you because you have done something to actually earn that salvation. Friends, realize that we come to God, if you're not a Christian, totally, with a, with a total surrender, realizing there's nothing you can bring to God except your sin. Friends, if, you, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you would come to Him, realizing you need God in your life. And without the Spirit of God in your life, you will never understand the depthness of your sin and the need for salvation. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian who has been awakened by the Spirit of God, and yet after that awakening, the Spirit of God, and after you, you submit, you, you, you becoming a Christian, you still play games with the world and, and friendship with, with the world and with the devil and, and with a scheme with his lures. To you, James says, draw near to God so God can draw near to you because you're Fellowship and your friendship with the world is causing an enmity between you and God. You need, to, you need to break that enmity by you drawing near to God, submitting to Him, resisting the devil, drawing near to Him so that God can draw near to you as well. Friends, don't be afraid to oppose a friendship with the world, that friendship with, which the devil lures us into. When you live a double-minded life, when you live a, in, a two, in two boats, your fellowship with God is pathetic. It is powerless, 
your conscience bothers you. You may even feel that it's too late for God to draw back to you. Friends, oftentimes people who live and are caught in this life, in, this, in the trap of, of double-mindedness, in the trap of sin, may feel discouraged and hopeless that's too far, too long or too, too um, late for them to turn back to God. Oh, friends, realize it is never too late for you to turn back to God. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. But how do we draw near to God? How do we draw near to God? Realize that it involves, first and foremost, coming to His Word, starting to read His Word, spending time with God in personal prayer, spending time with God when God gathers with His people in corporate worship. Drawing near to God involves making decisions in your life that resembles His ways. And particularly in those areas of your life when you are consciously acting against God's ways, it means purifying yourself, cleansing yourself, turning away, away from those things. And that brings us to the third way in which we humble ourselves before God. We looked at the first one is submit to God. Second, resist the devil and draw near to God. Third, cleanse and purify yourselves. Cleanse and purify yourselves. Look at verse 8. James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Friends, I wonder, I wonder what was the atmosphere in the church when they read these words coming from the hands of James for them. Up until now, James called them brothers and sisters. Words of endearment. And now, he's calling them sinners, double-minded people. And he's calling them to cleanse their hands and to purify their hearts. Now, we need to make a few clarifications about this verse. The cleansing that James speaks of here is not the cleansing that God promises to do through, our spirit, through His Spirit inside of us when He washes us, the washing of regeneration. That is not the cleansing that James deals with here. He is envisioning here the cleansing that we are responsible to take in our lives with the help of the Spirit of God. He is putting the responsibility, the decisions that we have to make in our own lives to take the things that we're doing and examining our lives, the things that are unclean, the things that are impure. And what are the things we need to do? What are the kind of actions we need to do to stop that? Cleanse ourselves of those. We must realize that we have a responsibility in the process of sanctification, in the process of cleansing. Now, certainly we cannot do that without the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God who does that in us. But friends, realize we have a responsibility. The image of cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts comes from Psalm 24, where the psalmist asked, Who is it that can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can draw near to the Lord, in other words? Who can ascend near to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place before the Lord? And the answer he gives, the psalmist gives, is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. You want to draw near to God so he will draw near to you? What do you need to do to draw near to God and draw near to he, so that he can draw near to you? When the, that process involves our cleansing. I want to be clear, careful and clear. It's not in this passage, the way the logic of this passage is, is, is written out in this particular passage, 
the drawing near to God comes before the cleansing. In this passage, the verb, the commands to draw, to, to draw near to God come before the commands to cleanse. We don't cleanse ourselves to draw near to God as a condition of drawing near to God. In this passage, the cleansing is the effect of drawing near to God. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other passages in Scripture where it makes it very clear that if we say we have fellowship with God and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. So we can't pretend like we are close to God. You and God, you are buddy with God, but you are intentionally, willingly living in disobedience in God's ways. That fellowship that you're claiming between you and God is hocus-pocus. It's a lie. It's a deception. And you're deceiving yourself, and you might be deceiving others as well. So we want to be very clear that you can't claim to have fellowship with God and draw near to Him while you're also intentionally living in an impure, unclean way. But in this passage, the order of the commands, the drawing near to God, comes before the cleansing. And that's a, that gives us a hope of grace. Come to God with your sin. Bring your sin. Don't let your sin continue to be an obstacle before you draw back to God. Don't say, I need first to cleanse myself before I'm going to start drawing close to God. I'm going to need to get rid of this habit before, before I'm going to start coming to church. Oh, friend, come to the Lord, a sinner as you are. Come to Him. Draw to Him. He will work that cleansing. He will give you the power to cleanse yourself and purify yourself. A humble person is a person who is willing and ready for such cleansing before God. Friends, humility before God involves a readiness to cleanse and purify ourselves, both on the outside and on the inside. I wonder, friend, is there something in your life that you know you need to cleanse? Is it something that you're watching inappropriate things on the website? Is it spending inordinate amount of hours on video games while neglecting your spiritual disciplines with the Lord or neglecting your family or neglecting serving the Lord? Is it things like neglecting st to spend time in prayer and, 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 and Scripture and a complacency towards the things of God? Is it an apathy towards gathering with God's people? Are there particular habits that may not be black and white written, thou shall not do this, and yet those things, those habits keep you away from loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What are areas in your life where you are showing signs of friendship with the world, signs of double-mindedness? Cleanse yourself. Cleanse your hand. Purify your minds. It's not just a matter of behavior. It's a matter of the heart as well. Lastly, the fourth way, we've seen the first three, submit yourself to God, submit to God, Resist the devil and draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify yourself. And fourthly, mourn for your sin. Mourn for your sin. And this builds up on the, on the third point. Friends, it's easy, even in cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts, even when we might be convinced or, or encouraged to do that, such cleansing, I want us to understand that such cleansing is not simply a religious activity that you're just sort of have to do once in a while. 
the cleansing of the hands and the purifying of the heart is not a matter of starting to say simply no to some things you love. The cleansing that James speaks of is, uh, is accompanied not simply by external rituals. The cleansing that James speaks of is accompanied by a heart that mourns for the sin of which it wants to cleanse itself. Actually, this is one of the greatest signs of a person who is humble before God. A person who is ready and willing to mourn for his or her sin. Of the Ten Commands that we see in these verses, four of them are given to this theme of mourning for sin. The first three are in verse 9. Look at them. And they're coming to us like a boxer just hitting, hitting these commands one after another. Be wretched and mourn and weep. James calls God's people to exhibit a heartfelt sorrow for sin, and this is the mark of the true repentance. And the fourth command is in verse 9. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Friends, let me pause here for a second. If you've ever thought that church is supposed to encourage us only to joy, only to a positive thinking, only to being motivated to go out and, and, and conquer the world, oh, friends, you're in it for a treat in this passage. This passage actually tells us that we should turn our joy to gloom and our laughter to mourning. When was the last time you obeyed this command? When was the last time when we spoke that it is okay even when we gather as a people? It is okay that we might walk away out of here not full of the joy of the Spirit, if you will, but full of the mourning that the Spirit might cause in us. What place does mourning for sin have in our lives as Christians? Now, the laughter and the joy that James has in mind is not the joy of the Lord, but something else. It's the superficial joy. It's the laughter of the person who takes God lightly. Jesus reflected this truth when he said in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. This is the laughter of those who like to be friends with the world. Even committed Christians can fall and develop a casual attitude towards sin and presume too much on God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, so they have a superficial joy about the mercy and grace of God. The solution for such superficial joy is to stop that joy. Turn that superficial joy into gloom. Turn the laughter into mourning. Now, some of you might say, Pastor, hold on. What about, what about the commands that Paul gives in Philippians? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Isn't, shouldn't that triumph and trump over this other command? I love how Doug Moo clarifies this objection that some might have. Doug Moo says the following, The joy Paul speaks about is a joy that comes when we realize that our sins are forgiven in Christ. 
the joy James warns us about is the fleeting and superficial joy that comes when we indulge in sin. True Christian joy can never be ours if we ignore or tolerate sin. It only comes when we have squarely faced the reality of our sin, brought it before the Lord in repentance and humility, and experienced the cleansing work of the Spirit. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if this is the kind of joy you have as a Christian. If it's anything but this kind of joy, if it's, if it's a superficial, the, the take-God-easy kind of joy, oh, friends, let that joy stop right here. Don't take that joy with you when you leave the service. Leave that joy here and take instead an attitude of mourning, an attitude of weeping for sin. But let me ask you, how often, dear friends, even when we confess our sin, we might do so simply out of habit? Think about your own life. Think about your prayer life, your personal prayer life. As I was working myself through, through, this, through this week and this, this, through this sermon, I realized in my own heart, in my own, in my own life, I have habits. I know I'm so, I have habits of confessing my sin. And I do often. But sometimes I just do it because I'm used to doing it. And I just do it because I'm supposed to do it. I'm, just, I'm doing it because it's polite to do it. And how often... I may confess sin, but my heart doesn't, doesn't mourn for the sin I'm confessing. One of the signs of true spiritual life in a Christian is that he mourns for sin. Not only when he becomes saved, but also as he battles sin in his life or her life, as she, as she grows, as a person grows in sanctification. Oh, friends, one of the signs that we are humble before God is that we practice regularly Mourning for sin. Mourning for our sin. To be humble before God invites this readiness for mourning. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I wonder if you realize that the heart of the Christian message is this fact that God, the creator of the world, confronts his creation with their rebellion against him. At the heart of the Christian message is this exposure of our decision not to submit anymore to the one who made us. Not to submit to his ways, not to follow his decrees, not to follow his design for us. He designed us for his glory. He designed us to live in harmony with his creation, with one another. And after we have sub, uh, rejected our submission to God, everything else went wrong. Separation between Adam and Eve and the garden Separation between and, 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 and tension between them as a couple. Separation between the brothers, Abel and Cain. Everything started going wrong the minute we have rejected our submission to God. Realize that God confronts us with our rebellion. At the heart of the gospel is this exposure of our sin. And the heart of the, of the gospel is not only that we are severed from one another and live with tensions, is that we will experience the wrath of God who will come against all those who will continue in that rebellion against Him. But at the heart of the Christian message is also this glorious declaration that God provided a way for rebellious hearts, for a nature that was inclined toward rebellion and unable to get out of that rebellion on its own. God provides a message of hope that through Christ, through His Son, Rebellious sinners like us 
with a rebellious, stubborn heart and nature can be subdued. We can be won over. We can be reconciled. And that reconciliation is when we return, repent of our sin, and trust in Christ to be saved. Oh, friends, realize that the way this gospel calls us to respond to God is to submit to Him. It's to submit to His ways. It's to trust in His decree and trust in this salvation that He has provided for us to Jesus. Friends, if you never responded to the gospel, if you've never, or perhaps you have responded to the gospel in a very superficial way, in a kind of easy way, if you've never submitted to God as a way to respond to the gospel, I want to call on you today to submit to Him. Repent of your sin and trust in Christ, and He will reconcile you to Himself, and He will make you humble. He will cause in you a, a, a genuine humility that you cannot produce by yourself. Friends, if you'd like to know more about that response to the gospel, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But if you're a Christian, if, you, if, you, if you've listened to this message, you've been a Christian all your life, or not all your life, but for a good part of your life. Nobody can be a Christian all his life. Let's get that very clear. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, and it feels like you've been a Christian for all your life, I want to remind you, I want to close this sermon with the illustration that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 18. Jesus gave an illustration about two men who walked to a temple, to the temple to pray. And it says, two men walked up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, unjust adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, friends, would you like to receive that man into our membership? Would you think that he's a good man? He's a follower of God, recognizing God, praying to God. Look at his righteous way of life. But listen to the other prayer. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, it is easy for us, even in our religion, to be proud. It is easy for us to pray to God with a proud heart. It is easy for us to take confidence and boast in how many years or decades we've been a Baptist, and not just any Baptist, but a Southern Baptist of all Baptists. It is easy for us to sort of boast in our traditions and in our ways of, of being a Christian, and we come to God with an attitude of, of pride. Oh, friends, ask yourself, when was the last time you mourned for your sin? When was the last time you came to the Lord with a heart broken over your sin? Not over the sin of others, but yours. Hating your sin and asking the Lord to cleanse you and, and pleading with the Lord to take away things that you're not able to, to, to cleanse on your own. Friends, one of the things we have done in our services 
especially when you do the Lord's Supper, is to have prayers of confession as a congregation. And I've, I've realized that we haven't done those enough. We, we should do those more often. And in discussing with some of you, I've been encouraged to hear that some of you look forward to those times when we have a prayer of confession, when we confess our sins before the Lord. And by God's grace, we want to introduce that more and use that more in our services. But even as a people, as a congregation, we want to be a people who humble ourselves before the Lord by having contrite hearts, by submitting ourselves to Him, by opposing the devil, by drawing near to the Lord, by cleansing our hearts, and by mourning for sin. C.J. Mahaney said in, in his book, by the way, if you want to grow in, in humbleness and humility, I strongly recommend to you, pick up C.J. Mahaney's book on humility. It will do you a lot of good to your soul. Read it, and don't read it alone. Read it with another believer. Get together with another Christian and work together with him or her um, and, and work that book. It will help you in growing in humility. C.J. Mahaney said two things. Show me a church where there's division, where there's quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride. My prayer this week for our church as I was preparing this message is that the Lord will help us to grow in humility that this would be a distinct characteristic of our relationships as members of this congregation, that we would have this kind of distinct humility that James speaks about. And last quote I want to leave you from, from, from C.J. Mahaney's book, very convicting to me as well. It is possible to admire humility while remaining proud ourselves. He goes on to say, I'm very aware that it's possible for me even now to be teaching on humility while neglecting pride in my own heart. Friends, let's take this examination of our own hearts as we examine ourselves to see how is it, what degree of humility we are experiencing and cultivating in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, awakening us the severity, the realization of the severity of being proud. Awakening us the reality of how that pride manifests in our lives in so many ways. Subtle ways in which we don't even realize. Expose that pride in our hearts. Father, if you have to use others to expose that pride, I know it's painful for others to expose our pride, but do that, O oh Lord, and give us the humility to receive those corrections. Give us the humility to submit to you. Give us the humility to oppose the devil. Give us the humility to draw near to you and to cleanse ourselves before you and to mourn for our sin. Would you grow in us a conspicuant, distinct, spirit of humility and help us to cultivate that in our lives so that your grace would be given to us in increasing measures. Help us, O oh Lord, to surrender our wills to you. Help us to, to, to say no to our stubbornness, to our stubborn thinking, to our stubborn desires. Help us to submit ourselves to you so that we might grow in a, being a humble people before you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.